The other thing I think, as you mentioned, is like isometric is not supposed to be this magic bullet that is going to make you jump super high or run super fast or put on massive amounts of muscle, but perhaps just a very small step in progressing somebody from nothing to super maximal eccentrics, for example. So looking at what are the effects of doing like three weeks of focused isometrics before you move on to something else in a periodized plan. Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. If you're not familiar with Clinical Athlete, we're a network of healthcare providers, students, and coaches who specialize in the management of athletes. We have two missions. The first mission is to connect athletes with professionals who they can trust. And our second mission is to create a community and foster the education of those professionals and future professionals in the realm of athlete health and performance. This podcast is one way that we fulfill those missions. And if you're one of our six listeners who enjoy the show, do us a favor and give it a rating on your favorite podcast platform so that we can get this information out to as many people as possible. In fact, pause this, scroll down to the app, do the thing, click the five star in the thing, and then come back, boom, duty fulfilled. To learn more about Clinical Athlete, head on over to the website, clinicalathlete.com. Join the free Kalu community Facebook group where the Clinical Athlete and Level Up Initiative communities have combined to form an amazing group with several different types of learning opportunities. You can join the Kalu community Facebook group by clicking the link in the show notes. My name is Quinn Hennick. I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California at Clinical Athlete Newport. On this show, we are joined by co-hosts, Jared Maynard and John Flagg. Jared is a clinical athlete provider and physiotherapist in Waterloo, Ontario, Canada, an online powerlifting coach. John is a clinical athlete provider, certified athletic trainer, and online powerlifting, weightlifting, and strongman coach, and the lead instructor of the clinical athlete powerlifting certification. This show is what we're going to start calling a science to practice episode. And this is where we dig into the weeds of the research a little bit. We always try to bring it back to practicality, but these types of episodes can and will get technical. The reason that we want to be a little bit more deliberate about what to expect from each show is because the feedback that we get from you guys tells us that some people really like the deep nitty gritty sciencey stuff and some prefer other topics and formats. So this gives you a chance to be selective in the type of show that you listen to. So with that said, on this Science to Practice episode, we are very excited to welcome our guest, Dustin Oranchuk. Dustin is a strength conditioning coach and PhD student where he is studying the effects of different types of muscle contractions on muscle adaptation, strength, hypertrophy, etc. He also did an awesome systematic review about a year ago on the effects of isometric muscle contractions uh, to what extent isometrics provide strength, hypertrophy, rate of force development adaptations. It's a great paper. I reference it all the time. So we did get into that. We dug into different types of isometrics, pushes, holds, quasi-isometrics, and uh, what we might expect to get out of all those things. So it was a really fun and interesting conversation about his work, and we hope you enjoy. Dustin Orenchev, thanks for being on the Clinical Athlete Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Quinn, and everyone else. 
We're super excited. Um, Dustin, you have, you have the least amount of beard on the show. Um, me is a close second. Jared <laughs> takes second, or I'm sorry, me is a close third, second to last. Jared takes a second, and then John, of course. John's the reigning, reigning king. I think he's got potential, though. You know, oh, like if he grew sure. it out, it would not, you know, patch up. Yeah. Remind me later. Sorry, there's a picture I got to show you where it was pretty long. It was getting caught in my zipper. Like that's how long it used to be. Do you? Uh, <laughs> but, but John, you still use beard oil, correct? Yeah, yeah, more frequently now too. And you get, you can't see it, but I got a hair tie in today too. Do you have girls a man bun? Do you have a man bun? My yes. my my little girls did my hair today. <laughs> he sized up the question. Yes, he has a man bun. I'm just going to keep on rolling, guys. We'll just leave that part alone, okay? Nope. Yeah. Dustin, do you have an iPhone or an Android? Oh, um, I do this well, already. I've had, an, uh, I've had an Android for a really long time, and then the current group I'm working with gave me an iPhone. So you have both. So I've got both. So you're the Which baller. do you like more? <laughs> well... I would I'd have to go with my Android because I mean I've had it a lot longer. I know all the stuff on it. I know what to do. The iPhone's just for like some work stuff, and I really use it for texting and maybe videos, and that's about it. The so, look of vindication on John's face was. We just became remarkable. best friends. Just all became right. best friends. This is great. I'm I'm glad. He's also Canadian though, so don't get too comfortable. So oh. like we've got that connection. Yeah. Exactly. Well, and just for the record, he, he picked the Android just for because he's familiar with it and it's a safe place. But keep using the iPhone more, Dustin, and, and you will change teams. Uh, Jared can attest. I was say, do, you, do you like me more now, Quinn, because I have an iPhone? Yeah, I think so. Yes. Um, okay. <laughs> so uh, we're super excited to have Dustin on the show. I've actually wanted to get him on for a long time. Um, because, for one, there's a, a review paper that he did uh, a couple of years ago now. It's, time is flying, but it's a paper that I reference all the time. I reference it in uh, courses and in the Forum. And it's only a small part of his entire PhD line of research. And so we thought it would be a really good idea to get him on the show and talk about that. But... Before we do, Dustin, can you give a, uh, a background on yourself and, and tell our six listeners uh, what's led you, you know, kind of through the through your career paths and, and where you are now? Sure. So um, I grew up and was born in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. And, uh, you know, like probably almost everybody here and everybody listening played a lot of sports and um you know, eventually I got into lifting weights and things like that to be a better athlete. Uh, American football was sort of the first sport that I took up and played seriously. And one of the private training centers that I ended up going to had like, you know, when you're when you're young and you walk into a place and they've got laser lights and um, U2 Max equipment and all these types of things, you're kind of like, well, what's going on? And um, had a good relationship with the owner. I'd like stock the fridges with drinks for a couple hours a week, you know, make a couple extra bucks when you're in uh, grade 10 or whatever. And um, I was like, I should try and get into this. So I earned my undergrad in kinesiology at the University of Calgary. 
Um, nearing the end of that, I had a relatively brief stint with CSI or the Canadian Sport Institute in Calgary. So you might know like Matt Jordan and some of those guys. So I was able to spend a little bit of time with them, not long enough. Um, and then when that ended and through a little bit of connection, I ended up in a private hockey training facility in Connecticut for the summer, just for the off season of hockey. And when I was there, I met a cool friend, Jason, and, um, sort of, he made a connection between me and a couple other people. And I moved to Colorado, a little mountain town called Alamosa, where I earned my master's degree. Uh, published my first works, got my teaching experience, and I served as the GA for um, a couple of teams, swimming, volleyball, basketball for, for periods of time. And I came back to Calgary, and I kind of knew about halfway through the master's I wanted to earn a PhD, um, be able to teach and do research and, and kind of just keep learning, keep going with it. So I came back to Canada, strength conditioning coach for the football team at the university for about a year. Uh, while I was trying to get my PhD applications and earn a scholarship somewhere and eventually ended up leaving for Auckland, New Zealand, which uh, a lot of great memories and um, started the PhD, which we'll talk a little bit about. And the last year I got stuck, stuck outside of New Zealand in Australia. They wouldn't let me back in because I'm not a citizen or a PR. So my best friend had to sell my car and send me my, the rest of my clothes. And I came back to Canada uh, to finish up the PhD. And most recently, I was really lucky to get on board with um, a group called Acumen Sport and Shoulder. So we have an orthopedic surgeon, athletic therapists, um, and things like that. So I've joined the strength conditioning team and starting to try and get into a little bit of data science and analysis with them as well. And that's been uh, about two months now, so pretty early on. So you were, were you doing, uh, so you were in Australia but you were doing all your work in New Zealand and then you're like, all right, I want to go back to New Zealand, but Oh, I can't. Yeah. So the first two years or two and a bit years of the PhD, I was stationed in Auckland um, and I was doing all my work there. And then one of my supervisors for the PhD, um, Andre, he is out in Melbourne at Victoria university and they're a little bit better set up for like blood draws and muscle biopsies and sort of the, the biological stuff. So we figured, well, if I've got a third supervisor, I've got a place to stay, like let's pop over there for six or eight months. We'll collect the last study there uh, with our blood biopsies and, and other measures. And then while I was there, COVID happened, you know, they gave you about 48 and uh, less than that. Um, I remember I was working away at my computer just trying to get as much done because we weren't sure when the labs were going to get shut down. And um, I had like the New Zealand Herald website up on one of my extra monitors and I pressed refresh and it was like, uh, need to get back to like borders are closing in four hours or something. So basically I had four hours notice to try and get a plane ticket and get back to New Zealand before they locked the borders down and uh, couldn't do it. And I stayed in Melbourne for months waiting for that to, you know, to see if they would let people who kind of had a life there back in and never happened. The Aussie work visa ran out. My New Zealand visa ran out. I got a little temporary one just to give me legal status while I got a flight back to Canada. And that's sort of what happened to me. Jeez. Talk about a change of plans. 
Yeah. <laughs> so we didn't even finish those studies that I had stayed behind, you know. So um, the labs are still still not running optimally. Well, maybe you got some some data in the future to open the final drawer again and finish some things up. But speaking of the PhD and those being a part of it and the uh, the review I was talking about earlier is an isometric review that I'm sure we'll get into. But what is the focus of of the of the PhD in general? Yes, yeah, so the focus um, it's a little bit of a of an interesting phrasing, and we've kind of played around with how to phrase it differently, but uh, eccentric, quasi-isometrics, or quasi-isometric eccentrics. Um, but for everybody listening, if you can imagine taking a barbell off of a squat, uh, off of a rack uh, for a bench press, and you bring the bar down to about halfway or, or you know somewhere where there's tension on the muscles, and you're resisting gravity as long as you can isometrically, and then even as you are lowering the bar, uh, eccentrically. So the eccentric after the fatiguing isometric is maximal. And that's what makes it a little bit different than just lowering the bar slowly under control. Um, so what's going on biomechanically and then what's going on, you know, physiologically and, and with muscle fatigue and might that improve muscle size, but have lower sort of joint torques. So potentially there might be an ad- uh, application for uh, rehab, people who have joint issues, things like that, to still be able to load the muscle um, efficiently. Would that also potentially take the place of uh, an actual overloaded eccentric where it's it's super maximal on the way down and you have some type of spotter or technique to, to concentrically get it back into the position? But to your point, if you can't handle that actually super max, maximal external load, well, maybe we can set it up this way, pre-fatigue the fibers in some way or, or create maximal motor unit recruitment with sub-maximal external load. Does that fall in line with that as well? Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, I don't think it would be a replacement for super-maximal eccentrics with very, very high loads, like upwards of 100% plus. Um, but yeah, I think I think we're able to likely recruit a lot of motor units after the fatiguing bit. Uh, and we get the long time under tensions, which we know can sort of occlude the uh, the muscles and and get sort of that um, hypoxic state. And um, that's part of you know biopsy studies and things like that that'll need to be done to to look at that. Um, but yeah, you're on the right track. Were you seeing some of the same architectural changes in the muscles with the quasi isometrics that you would with a super maximal eccentric? like fascicle length changes and things like that? So the the first thing is that we were unable to finish our training study. So we don't have any long-term data on that at all. The data we do have um, that's out there published recently is just acute. So we're talking about uh, the first week. So we had um, you know people either perform isokinetic eccentric contractions of the knee flexor and knee extensors or the EQI contractions. And we track that throughout the week. Um, and yeah, so we, we see an increase generally in fascicle lengths. Um, and then it returns to baseline very quickly because it's only one session that we're doing these, uh, these works in. Um, and the patient angle doesn't change all that much. Uh, and that seems to line up pretty accurately with super maximal eccentrics where we get that increase in fascicle length, increase in muscle thickness, 
Um, but penation angle doesn't change very much. But that's really just trying to, uh, you know, look at our acute or short-term data and, and say, okay, well, if that were to continue for eight weeks, this is probably what we'd see. So you can almost you can kind of sort of try to forecast it just based on that preliminary data, but 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 you guys were headed that direction. Yeah, yeah. So it'll okay. it'll get done at some point. Who knows when? <laughs> but uh, yeah, if I if I gun to my head had to say what would have happened, that would that would be it. Well, that's really interesting because I that's super relevant to again populations that that may not be able to handle that that super maximal load, but potentially getting some of the same benefits. Um, okay. So with that, one of the papers that are, that's in line, I would assume in, in the line of, of your PhD study was the review that you did on isometric training, um, in 2000, end of 2018, yeah. end, of, end of 2019. Yeah, it was it was accepted, and I had a print end of 2018, and then I think it was like February 2019 that it was given an issue and all that. Okay, uh, yeah, because I was super excited. I got like a a nice formatted version, whereas before it was always the preprint version that's like a thousand, always a thousand pages with a watermark on it, you know, classic. Um, but the the title of that paper is Isometric Training and Long Term Adaptations: Effects of Muscle Length, Intensity, and Intent: A Systematic Review. And I have, my bias here is that in rehab land, isometrics, especially for the patellar tendon and the quad, got a whole lot of hype in 2015-ish when Ebony Rio did her famous laboratory N equals six study where they found an exercise-induced analgesic effect after a, a just you know a long duration uh, knee extension holds, it was like five sets of forty five second holds, and um, cortical inhibition went down, and and analgesia uh, knee pain uh, went down, and maximum volitional isometric contraction went up. So that was all good. It was all those acute effects, and then you know they were able to to uh, recreate those effects, and then they tried to do the same thing with Achilles tendon and they weren't getting the same analgesic effect. And then they started to see that, oh, well, isotonics can kind of have the same analgesic effect. Oh, so isometrics are useless, so they don't matter. And and for me, it was like, well, that was never, there's like 20 years of research on isometrics before that, where it's just another way to load. So one reason that I appreciate this review is because it, it is that, it's the effect of isometrics on the tissues and the muscle as we are considering isometrics as just another way to load the system, not as some like magic fix for pain. Uh, and can you talk about what, what gaps were you seeing in the research and maybe even as a coach yourself, you know, as you started to f- think about what you were going to do for your PhD, start to think about this review paper specifically, what gaps were you seeing in the literature and, and in practice that was the impetus for this yeah, so the the review in and of itself was um, it was it was sort of an interesting way that it came about because we knew before I had left for New Zealand that like this EQI type topic was going to be the focus that didn't come out of the review that was prior, and it just so happens that in most situations with PhDs in New Zealand, um, at least at our institute, was that typically you'll write a systematic review and or meta-analysis, an iterative review, and then you'll have some 
reliability stuff and then some experimental stuff and maybe a training study. But of course, if you do, um, you know, a, a PubMed search for EQIs or anything of the sort, you'll come up with like maybe three studies, right? So how do you write a systematic review? Um, well, you don't. So you're like, well, what's a relevant topic that's pretty similar that there's something out there and there's a hole in the literature? Because you got all these individual studies and you've got, you know, five or six systematic reviews on eccentric training in the last 10 years, but not on isometric. So that was how the review itself came to be. Um, and then coming out of the review, I think the biggest holes in isometric literature anyway, are that all the studies were in like active and healthy people. So we have a complete lack of any information on people that are already well-trained. So people who lift weights or people who are, good athletes. Uh, and then on the complete other end of the spectrum, we have basically no research on people who are injured, who have tendinopathies or muscle wasting or, you know, are very old. So we have all, basically all the studies that are included in that systematic review are people who are like mid twenties, early thirties on average, uh, are physically active um, or recreationally active and are healthy. Um, so I think there was like, that's where to go next. I think as hard as it is, is you got to get a large population of people who suffer from patella tendinopathies. So no N of six, as you mentioned, and um, you know, that might just take, might take time, might take a lab group two or three years to get enough people with the same level and severity of tendinitis um, to be able to do something like that. Um, the other thing I think, as you mentioned, is like isometric is not supposed to be this magic bullet that is going to make you jump super high or run super fast or put on massive amounts of muscle. Um, but perhaps just a very small step in progressing somebody from nothing to super maximal eccentrics, for example. So looking at what are the effects of doing like three weeks of focused isometrics before you move on to something else in a periodized plan that also doesn't really exist in the current literature. And I think that's, um, that would be a great way to explore. Which is interesting because in, in rehab or it's like, it's commonly taught, oh, let's start with isometrics as a kind of an entry point, but we've never, like you said, it's, we've not actually looked at it just kind of anecdote. It just makes some sense, but I think starting with the untrained, because I noticed about that about the paper too, and that's the systematic review is is um, just limited to what's out there. So you can you, you organize that as it is, but it's at least helpful to have a bunch of beginners to see a, a group of people that a lot of things are going to work on to see what it does. Like it's a kind of a clean slate, you know, like a little sandbox you can you can play around with, and then you can specialize, just like you said, but. In that review, there were some important determinants that I do think are, are applicable. Um, what did you guys find in terms of, let's say we're doing isometrics, but we have a question about well, like what angle should we train at and how that affects the strength and hypertrophy adaptations? Uh, we'll start there, just, just muscle lengths and, and the joint angle. How does that affect the, uh, the, the effect of the exercise? Yeah, so I think uh, out of out of all of the things, you know, so we talk about the title, so the effect of muscle length, intensity, and intent. 
the the most interesting one um, and the one with the most studies was muscle length or joint angle, right? And so the the larger the angle, the longer the muscle. Um, so in to be very brief, it seemed like the longer the muscle length was trained at, the larger the morphological adaptation, so increase in muscle thickness or volume or whatever measurement tool that the researchers used. And then there was also seemed to be uh, a little bit of a trend towards the longer the muscle length that was trained at, the better the uh, improvement in strength correlated or, or carried over to the entire range of motion or for the studies that looked at dynamic performance, concentric or, or whatever, um, the longer the muscle length carried over better to performance, uh, dynamic performance and performance throughout the entire range. Um, and uh, I think, can't really tell from that research, but I think it's because training at longer muscle lengths improves muscle size better than shorter and muscle mass, muscle just contracts, right? So as long as you can train it to contract, uh, it should contract and help throughout the entire range of motion. Whereas short muscle length training isometrically didn't build as much muscle. Um, so the improvements in performance were a lot more neurological, which is going to be a little bit more um, specific to that particular joint angle or the ones in its uh, immediate vicinity. Which seems, if you think about specificity, it seems kind of intuitive to think about that, but you may not, you know, in practice, you, you may not think about it. Um, kind of based on this paper, if I'm, if I'm starting with somebody with isometrics, what I tend to do is just give them different angles uh, because my interpretation and, and what I see anecdotally is if you, if you're in a shorter uh, joint angle or maybe you're more mid mid range, you can get a higher just overall peak force because of the length tension relationship. But the adaptation of strength is going to be at more specific to the the range that it's trained in. If you lengthen the muscle and perform the isometric, you may not get as high of a, of a peak force and, and potentially maybe not as much of a change in, in maximal force production. But to you, what you said, you will get more of a transfer in strength throughout the arc, even in the untrained angles. So it's kind of a, you know, pick your poison. What do you want? If you had to pick one, it sounds like if they can tolerate it, potentially just try to have the, the muscle in, in as much of a lengthened position as they can tolerate. Would that be fair? Yeah. Yeah. I, th I think that's a fair conclusion. And, um, and again, we're talking about people who are healthy and that can tolerate that, that particular joint angle or that muscle length, however you want to look at it. So I think there's a couple of things here when you're working with, uh, athletes or people that are pretty healthy, then Isometric training is probably going to be a relatively small bit of your toolbox, right? You're going to have them doing jumping and running and sprinting and squats and lunges and all these types of things. So when you already have full range of motion squats or full range of motion lunges or whatever you're doing, calf raises, um, then isometric training might fit in better just to improve that point in the range of motion that is critical for performance. So you're going to use it for a little bit more of like a neurological overload to like really get those motor units firing really specifically at that range of motion. 
Whereas if we're working with somebody who's maybe coming back from an injury, so they can tolerate everything, but we want to build a little bit of muscle mass and, and kind of ease them into it, then perhaps training at longer muscle lengths for a few weeks um, might give you the better sort of bang for your buck since you're not sprinting yet, you're not doing full range of motion squats just yet, um, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, totally makes sense. I think, I think it goes into um, maybe the conversation of the holes and pushes versus the quasi-isometrics. And so if we're trying to conceptualize these different um, categories of isometric contractions, and correct me if, if I have this right, and then you can kind of elaborate, but a push, or maybe actually let's have you do that so I don't mess it up. Yeah, push, so you, hold you versus quasi, yeah. Yeah, cool. So pushing, uh, pushing versus holding, or, you know, you might have other ways that they're referred to are uh, yielding or overcoming isometrics. Um, you can chime in. There's like one or two other ways that they're referred to, um, either in the literature or, or you know, in, in our strength conditioning type world. So pushing or overcoming isometrics, that would be like, pushing into an immovable object. So for example, doing, um, pushing a barbell against the bottom of uh, squat catches in, in a weight room. So you cannot move, there is no real movement, um, but you're producing a whole lot of force potentially, right? You could, you could put 80% effort into it, but uh, uh, that's your pushing or overcoming isometrics. And then holding isometrics is your resisting something that is acting upon you. So instead of pushing into an immovable object, you're holding a barbell at like mid-range or a dumbbell at mid-range or a leg extension or something like that. Or perhaps um, you have a training partner or a coach that's pushing against um, your hand and you're trying to maintain your elbow angle. So um, yeah. <laughs> So yeah, that's your pushing versus holding and then your quasi-isometrics. So this was talked about a little bit by Verkashansky, like way back. Um, I haven't found anything before him, uh, although everything new is borrowed, right? Um, so there's probably somebody in ancient Greece who called it something else and there's no record of it. Um, but that's uh, essentially we're talking about eccentric quasi-isometrics or quasi-isometric eccentrics. You're holding an isometric that is uh, a holding, right? <laughs> so holding isometric and you're maintaining that angle as long as you can and it might just end up being too heavy or fatigue accumulates and you get these eccentric contraction. Um, but a lot of times you'll see it's like a, like a clock. So you'll move through this little range and then you'll be able to hold it for a couple more seconds and then you move through a little range and you hold it for a few more seconds. Um, yeah. <laughs> So right. this means two ahead, things. Sorry, you actually read Super Training, which is awesome because you dropped Verkashansky. And I want to pull that quote and actually drop it on Facebook for all the people that suggest to do yielding isometrics. And somebody says, well, what's that? And you hear, uh, because that was, I think, one of the most simple and best ways to just explain a yielding isometric. Quinn, you can ask your question now. I just had to chime in. Uh, yeah, no, I, I was going to, so differentiating between the holds and the, and the quasi isometric. So when I program, I, I, we mess around with isometrics, uh, in my programming quite a bit with 
I see a lot of barbell sport athletes, weightlifters, and they teletendinopathy is probably the most common thing that I see uh, personally as a clinician, just because of the nature of the of the sport. And we mess around with with all sorts of these things. The difference between I've never actually programmed the quasi isometric. I've messed with them a little bit. Would you say the difference is just the fact that instead of cutting the hold off after you're at a sufficient fatigue level or whatever the time prescription is, you just let it ride until you're back to a start position. Like it's, it's that eccentric portion that is the difference. Yeah. Yeah. So whether you're at the start position or the bottom of a squat or, or, you know, if you get to a rack or, you know, maybe it, maybe it only moves a centimeter, but there's, there's a downward movement or a lengthening of the muscle. Do you think that is where the magic will happen? So like, would you want to use as much weight as you can so that there's not this like prolonged amount of time before you start to break position or does that matter? Well, I think it matters depending on what you're trying to get out of it. So if we go back to like the review or a lot of the other stuff that's out there, the sort of time under tension or total volume load, uh, so the amount of time that you're holding a particular weight, um, that seems to matter a lot more for like hypertrophy, right? So if you wanted to really max out hypertrophy, then you might program EQIs in a similar way that you would dynamic work. So if you think about longer sets, so I mean, you know, uh, probably 10 or 15 years ago, it was like, oh, well, if you want to maximize hypertrophy, like you need 50 to 80 seconds of time under tension per set. So I don't know if that's true, really. It's like the total amount of volume you have in a particular training session that you're able to recover from, um, which we won't really get into. But for EQI stuff, if hypertrophy is your main goal, then you want those longer sets. So you might program a weight or a load where the entire contraction takes 30 plus seconds to complete. Where if we want to start getting into a little bit more strength, especially like specifically um, slow eccentric strength and performance, then you might load it a lot more heavily. Uh, you might only be able to maintain 15 seconds of tension per set. When would you, for, for a strength, and I know we're getting into the realm of like, well, we haven't actually, I didn't get to finish my studies and there's not a lot of, so we're pontificating right now and we're fine with that here on the Talk About the Podcast. Um, if you'll say you're healthy and you just want to kind of mess around with some novel um, techniques, for a hypertrophy standpoint, is there an argument for a quasi-isometric over just doing isotonics with a controlled, you know, making sure mechanical tension stays pretty constant through both uh, phases of the movement? Um, is there a potential argument for quasi-isometrics adding a little bit more bang for buck, even if it's just a kind of a metabolic, you know, fatigue standpoint or something like that? Yeah, so I think you make a great point about just having the same load isotonically concentric eccentric concentric eccentric um there's a couple of things to sort of consider in terms of applying it i think uh, and that's that when you do an eqi of course we're we're getting rid of that concentric component and when you get rid of that concentric component right we've probably all seen those um like velocity uh, the force velocity curves 
So the faster the concentric gets, the less load you can use. And then, you know, the slower the concentric gets, that's the heavier load. And then isometric is going to be more force or torque than anything you can do concentrically. And then eccentric, you know, the force and torque get higher. So you would probably, well, you'd almost certainly be able to maintain a greater amount of time under tension if you are hold if you're doing an EQI versus doing concentric stuff because you're eliminating the weakest of the three contraction types. So for one set, uh, you know, let's just say you're pick out 100 kilos on a bar for a bench press or something like that, and you just do an EQI versus wrapping out as many reps as you can. Uh, I would think that your total time under tension at the same weight, so your total load for that set would be higher with an EQI, which might have some benefit potentially for for hypertrophy. Um, I think probably, especially for somebody who's already healthy, uh, if you wanted to add like an EQI rep to the end of your like last set of a particular exercise for the day to add extra volume, that might be kind of interesting as well. So you do like your set of five or six, and then you lower down halfway and you just hold it as long as you possibly can. You dump the bar back or something like that at the end of your set. Um, a little finisher. I was kind of thinking yeah. that too. Sorry, Jared. Go ahead. Yeah given that you don't have to perform well the next day, let's say. Right. Yeah. So half of what we do on the podcast is getting into the weeds with, with research. And it might just be all the caffeine that I've consumed today, but I can feel a lot. Hey, he's with me. It's a Canadian thing. Um, John's consuming caffeine too with his monster. But anyway, my point is I can feel a lot of the new grads, clinicians, and students who are listening to us talk about this getting off talking about panation angle, the different definitions, and and they're just thinking, holy smokes, wh what do I do with the person on Monday? Like, I kind of want to use isometrics, and I think that, like, maybe that'd be a good thing, but they're getting a little bogged down, or they might be feeling that way. What would you say to those people? Like, bring them back in, talk them off the cliff, tell them it's going to be okay, and Dustin says... I would say if you're thinking about doing anything with isometrics, just remember that isometric training follows the same logic as concentric or eccentric or any other type of training where specificity, you know, it still exists, right? It's not going to cure everything. Um, and the rules still apply. So longer set durations for hypertrophy, shorter and high intensity for strength. If you want to push with like rapid intent, that's going to be better for rapid intent and sports performance than gradually building up intensity. So the same rules apply. Gotcha. So don't overthink it too much. Make sure it makes sense to the person in their situation and it's going to be okay. <laughs> yeah, well said. Sweet. Well, they can pull the paper too because the great thing about a systematic review is that you've got the studies there that are, Dustin's done the hard work for us. They're organized there. Um, the protocols are in the tables. So you're probably, if hypertrophy or at least mitigating muscle loss, because no isometrics are not going to make you into Arnold, but at minimum, they're going to put mechanical tension on the muscle. So that's good. Anywhere, it looked like anywhere from 10, I think even one of the studies showed six second holds and you know, hypertrophy benefit, but up to 30 seconds and, and probably longer. So um, 10 to 30 seconds, you know, maybe a nice place to start, but the protocols are there. The intent is an interesting one that I 
had written here in my notes, but I think that's important. So ramping up sometimes with tenant issues, rate of loading is an issue, is a, is a problem that, you know, a pissed off tenant doesn't necessarily like to be, it can be loaded heavy, but it has to be kind of slow rolled into it as opposed to that abrupt kind of stretch shortening cycle plyometric type of deal. What was interesting in the papers, it seemed like intent um, was specific. So if your intent was to to push as, as fast and hard as possible, create as much force in the, in the shortest amount of time, that led to better rate of force development adaptations than ramping up to a peak. So, you know, take three or four seconds to get up to your peak, but then, you know, kick out as hard as you can. That helps with creating a peak force, but it didn't create these rate of force adaptations that might be even, you know, as important in sport. Is that accurate? Yeah, so I, I think um, I think there, there's still a little bit, it's still a little bit up in the air how, how much isometric rate of force development really carries over to athletic performance. So I think in general, isometric training should be targeted towards improving morphology. So like tendon structure, muscle size, all that, and is probably a little bit less useful for sports performance in the first place. Um, so if you're an athlete and you're healthy and all that, you're, isometric training is probably going to be a small portion of your overall training, right? Um, and if you're injured, then isometric training is probably going to be better off for improving tendon health and joint health. So the ramping contraction where you can handle it is, is definitely the way to go. Um, and getting back to being healthy and then improving rapid force production with plyos and jumps and things like that. I, I think that's the better way to go. Um, with testing too, cause we, you know, we talked about that as well. I think that's another benefit. You kind of put that in the paper is isometrics create a kind of a reliable environment to test. And that's when we talk about the knee and, and especially with ACL, that's kind of the gold standard. If you don't have a nice kinetic dynamometer, you can, you know, inline, uh, isometric quad test, uh, create a quad index that way. And it's reliable because you're constricting degrees of freedom. So that's where isometrics help. But to your point, somebody who creates a, a ton of force isometrically, they've at least ticked off that box, but that doesn't mean that they are going to be able to, to express that in, in their uh, dynamic environment. So it's always kind of just like low hanging fruit can you produce the force first? Okay, cool. Now let's integrate it. Um, did you get pinned as the isometric guy after that review came out? Like, uh, oh, you must do isometric training in your or training in your program all the time. Yeah, kind of. Um, I mean, it was pretty. It was kind of funny. I remember a couple of. Well, this would have been probably right after that paper came out, and I was coaching somebody at a powerlifting meet. I've never done a powerlifting meet myself, but I was coaching somebody um, probably because I had run somebody through a weightlifting meet before and I was close with the person. So it's, it's powerlifting. Sense. It's not that complicated. Yeah. Hey, yeah. Hey, not wrong, but take no, it easy, Quinn. No. This time we had more warm up a little bit. <laughs> um, but after it was done, uh, I was leaving and somebody went up to me and said, oh, are you the isometric guy? Yeah, they actually said that. And I was like, like, 
I didn't, my name didn't come up, nobody, nothing. So I don't even, I still don't really remember how they, how they knew who I was. Um, but that was weird. That felt very strange to me. Brandon, get a logo. Let's go. I going to say, I, I'm really, don't burst my bubble, but I'm imagining that your car has an isometric license plate. Like it just says isometrics on the license plate. Please. Uh, I'll, I'm just going to tell you, yes. That's what I wanted to hear, buddy. Yeah. yeah. Quasi. We got, uh, well, Brett Contreras did his PhD at the same place and he's the glued guy. So I don't know, maybe I got to try and market this or something. The thing. Absolutely. The quasi. I like it. I think that, I think that could work. Hey guys, Quinn Hennick here. Consider this a little brain break from our great conversation with Dustin Aranchek. You're probably in the middle of some isometric wall sits or something crazy. So I don't want to ruin your vibe, but just so you don't forget, if you haven't already, go to the link in the show notes, join the Kalu Community Facebook group, read the pinned announcement, introduce yourself, read the units that we've compiled for you with all of the Kalu approved starter pack materials and the Kalu mission, uh, including must listen podcasts and must read papers. And now back to the show. I don't want to throw off Quinn's flow here. Because he's he definitely gets in a good good question flow state when he gets after this stuff. But you mentioned powerlifting and, and we've mentioned performance a little bit. There's always been this kind of anecdotal movement in the powerlifting world that when people have a particular sticking point that they get kind of pinned down with, a lot of them go to heavy isometric work at that joint angle. Um, I've kind of always been an advocate more kind of what you're talking about. If you're healthy, plyometrics and some other stuff are probably uh, a better bet. But when it comes to working isometrics within that particular joint angle for things like strength sports, what is your take on that after all the research you've done? Yeah, I think that for barbell sports, especially powerlifting, that performing the isometric uh, at or maybe at just a hair longer of a muscle length would probably be the better way to go than to try and perform an isometric like rock bottom of a squat, for example, when your sticking point is two thirds of the way up. Um, because you're probably training relatively full range of motion already. Um, so when you want that strength, that neural adaptation at that sticking point, then you should train specifically at or very close to that sticking point. And just kind of piggybacking off what you've already said, that would still only make up a small portion of your overall training for that goal. Like you yeah. still have to squat to full range. You still have to do all the other things that you are doing. And you may add this in, in the beginning of a session, a couple times a week or something like that to bring that up. But it's not like I'm going to put all squatting aside and just work isometrics and yielding ISOs to get over this two-thirds of the way up squat uh, sticking point. Yeah, exactly right. You know, you might you might change out two of your working sets of squat per week for two or three or four, you know, sets of isometric contractions at that sticking point uh, or add them on top, depending on, you know, how you're recovering in the first place. But, uh, yeah, isometrics are, are rarely a, a substitute or a complete, a complete substitute anyway for sport training. Awesome. with the barbell sport, I would, I would think. And with, do you find, you mentioned earlier with eccentrics and stuff, do you find the recoverability of these kind of lands in between a 
concentric contraction and eccentric contraction. Like it is heavy. Like you're obviously going to a maximal. But we're not going through a full range of motion. So recoverability, you mentioned taking, you know, two or three working sets off in the week and doing these instead. That pretty much matches up. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't know if I can say like, oh, if you take off two sets of squat, then you, you know, you can add on six sets of isometrics or something. But I would certainly, I would certainly believe that it would be somewhere in there. So um, the last, the latest paper from the PhD that was published, we looked at EQIs versus isokinetic eccentrics, and we tracked that throughout a, a seven-day period. So pre, post, and then 24, 48, 72, and seven days after the session. So one leg did EQIs, one leg did eccentrics, and we matched them on, on total impulse or load or however you'd like to think of it. And the, uh, the one thing that was clear uh, at the very least was that the EQI stuff was certainly less fatiguing. They bounced back after like two days or, or even you know a day or two um, in terms of muscle soreness, in terms of reduced force production. Um, muscle swelling, all that kind of stuff. Muscle swelling was pretty consistent between the two, kind of suggesting that metabolic um, effects of EQIs is similar to eccentrics, but they were much less sore and force came back um, like a day or two sooner than the eccentrics. So um, at least the EQIs are, are definitely less, uh, less fatiguing and less detrimental to training in the following days. That actually makes me think of a hypothesis with the me metabolic being increased, but still being able to recover faster. That could be a heck of a boon for hypertrophy. Yeah, exactly. So I, th I think that would be that would be great for us to look at a, a longer term study. You know, six plus weeks. Um, which thanks, COVID. We yeah. probably were there, right? <laughs> but thanks, yeah. COVID. Yeah. Well, like I said, the tough thing is, is uh, if, if that's going to happen, it'll be people back in New Zealand and Australia because I, I, I don't have the equipment or anything to run that myself. And then, But uh, we'll see. It'll it'll happen. But no, that's a, that's a really good thought. And I think the same thing. Very cool. Good job, John. John brings up a good point with like, the higher, because what he was describing, pushing up against the rack or uh, pulling up against the rack or doing an isometric mid-thigh pull for my weightlifters as not just a test, but as some type of training modality. But correct me if I'm wrong, but there's not a lot out there on that, number one. Number two, that's a very specialized thing to be experimenting with. And for beginners or even intermediates or people whose training is just going well, this, that, those things probably don't really have a place unless you're just messing around. Um, you know, there's triphasic training and there's, there's some data on phase potentiation with doing these isometrics, like exactly what I said, pushing up against the rack, pulling up against the rack, doing isometric mid pull. But, you know, what's the return on that versus just like warming up with intent? But, but at the same time, we were talking about, oh, isometrics can be a nice entry point. So to make that distinction... For example, for a beginner, I don't want to wreck them and make them sore for an entire week after our first session. So with split squats, for example, if somebody has not done split squats, I usually program split squat holds because it doesn't make them as sore. They can put their knee pretty close to the ground. So that back leg is on pretty good stretch, that, that back quad. So they get that burn 
potentially taking advantage of, of what we've talked about and what you found in your paper, but it doesn't wreck them. And we can at least like get through that initial kind of introduction period, you know, of, of loading. So they're going to be a little sore, but it, it's not nearly as bad. And so that's just kind of reconciling. I think what we talked about with, oh, it can be a great entry point for beginners or people who are hurt, but also like on this other end of the spectrum of very specialized application of isometrics that probably doesn't have a place for most people. Yeah. Would, you, would you say that's on the right track? Yeah, definitely, 100%. And I mean, like you having people do some isometric holds for, you know, like uh, you can answer, please answer to this. <laughs> we would have that have them do that, what, like a couple of sessions or for a week or two before you'd actually have them do splits? Yeah, a couple, couple weeks. Yeah. So I, I think when you have them hold those positions for 30 plus seconds or maybe even last 20 plus seconds. So just getting into a little bit of physiology real quick is you're putting all those calcium ions into the muscle. So it's contracting and it's holding in there. And even like one or two sessions of that is going to result in some adaptations to like the T tubules and things that help clear a calcium. And that will make them less sore next time they do it. And you know, so you do a couple of sessions of holding, get them into split squats and they won't be wrecked. So you're exactly on the money. It's the repeated the word. Sorry, Jared, go ahead. I was going to say, I haven't said the words T-tubules since about second or third year of undergrad. So this is a good, it feels good to get back to my roots. <laughs> I do believe that's the first time that T-tubules has been referenced on a Clean Clappy podcast. So sweet. <laughs> happened. Finally happened, Dustin. You did it. Yeah. Well, yeah, that'll be, that'll be one thing if we finish the, uh, the biopsy studies. It'll be like T-tubule uh, function, things like that, which is way more my my supervisor andre's field he's uh he's way more physiology than i am so but it's the repeated bout effects when we want to just put a label on it like there's several mechanisms that kind of go under that umbrella but we all know if you do the first thing the first time you're going to be more sore that's going to be the most sore that you get from it if you keep the dose consistent then second third exposure fourth exposure then you can add more but the isometrics just it just dampens the initial suck phase a little bit totally and uh yeah <laughs> i don't know about you guys but i know for me anyway the only thing that that doesn't work on is is barbell lunges uh, <laughs> every single time my ass just gets uh, like i can barely sit down for a day or two <laughs> doesn't even matter if I do it once or twice a week or three times a week. It just uh, never goes away. Well, yeah, you mentioned like the worst exercise that no one likes to do. I'll program them and everybody's like, nah, I skipped that one today, coach. I, uh, I've ran out of time. <laughs> it's your second exercise. They're miserable. I'm just, I'm in a perpetual isometric split squat stage for like the past five years. So I'm just going to live there heavier now i'll just do a quasi isometric put my feet on do my little uh double foot elevated split squat so now i have a deficit to go down to when i when the weight starts to win longer muscle lengths booyah science thanks Dustin. i mean yeah so give, strong give it a shot man give it a shot let me know what's up i have um, before and it was really fucking hard and then i stopped doing it so yeah but, well i think that's one thing for sure that i've talked about with like andre and some of my you know, conversations is like, if I were to program it, I would probably only program it like maybe for two weeks because people just will not do it past, you know, a couple of, a couple of sessions. Cause it's not fun. 
<laughs> you know, it's not fun. You're not moving massive weights. Like, uh, you're going to have a hard time with, with buy-in past two or three sessions. And if you're doing split squat iso holes, that just live in there perpetually. No wonder you're the mortal enemy of Nebola. <laughs> what do you mean? They help. They help my Nebola. I know, but you are battling Nebola and you are winning because you live at that. Correct. That's right. Yes, oh, that's, yeah. That's what I, I'm on your side. Relax. I'm Nebola's kryptonite. Exactly. Um, anything on. Te- so, because when I'm reading, when I think isometrics, uh, I think tendons, and there's the, the um, Sebastian Bohm article from 2015 that's kind of the seminal paper on contraction type doesn't seem to matter for tendon stiffness. It's eccentric, isometric, concentric doesn't matter as long as the mechanical tension is sufficient, you know, over that 70% threshold or, or whatever um, we consider heavy, but it has to be of sufficient magnitude. Are you guys looking at tendon adaptation with the quasi-isometrics at all, or just kind of assuming based on the literature that if, it, if the mechanical tension is high enough, that's going to kind of be a piece of the puzzle as well? So uh, we are not uh, looking at tendon. We're not taking biopsies or anything like that. Um, just unfortunately, the way it was, was that where I went, nobody around there was experienced at actually measuring anything to do with the tendon itself. Um, so we have our outputs, like our torque and force outputs, and I have my muscle ultrasound and things like that. But no, we're not looking specifically at tendon in, in our study. Um, and I think the other thing around that too is that everybody who we've had um, in our isometric or isokinetic chair, they've all been fairly well-trained men. So I wouldn't expect that we would see much in terms of tendon adaptation, even if we were measuring it. Because um, we all know, you know, tendon is uh, very slow to adapt in people who don't have damaged tendon. And um, some of the tendon protocols too. So if we say like the load has to be above seventy percent for tendon adaptation, we'll say increased stiffness. Well, if you're holding for like a forty-five second isometric hold, or you're doing a fifteen rep max, which was the first start of a lot of the heavy, slow resistance training in the tenon land where you're doing three seconds up, three seconds down for a 15 rep max. I don't think you can do that with 70%. So we not, might not even be touching those magnitudes with a quasi isometric. If the entire rep is like a minute long, it might have to be light, you know? So we're looking at more muscle than tendon anyway. Yeah. I, I would think so too. You might be able to do it with like a, a single joint, machine or something but in terms of squatting 70 percent for 15 reps with three second <laughs> tempos uh maybe if you're a cross-country skier or somebody with just like an amazing aerobic capacity um <laughs> but yeah agreed what have you learned over the last several years in this line of research that's surprised you the most That's a that's a tough question, Quinn. I'm sorry. Um, I'm sorry to hit you. I don't think that one was on the sheet. <laughs> no, I would say um, I would say there's there's a couple of things um, in terms of research, just in general. I think it's um, unfortunately we've gotten to the point where researchers, including myself, you fall into the trap of just like publish and get your name and get citations and all this sort of stuff. 
And unfortunately, and again, this is true for, for some of the stuff I've done as well, but just the quality is, um, is not really that great or the question is really not that important. So we spend a lot of time on things that maybe don't matter that much uh, as opposed to like digging in, doing the really hard work, the stuff that's going to take like multiple years to find out and seeing like, for example, uh, you know, if we look at triphasic training or, or whatever, does doing a, an isometric phase before all these other phases, does that actually do anything? We don't really know because you would have to put together a 12-week training cycle with a large number of people and good measures and how do you equate between groups and, and that stuff's really, really hard, but it's kind of like the important stuff. And 12 weeks is still short. Like we, in, in the sports science land, like 12 week studies, like, oh God, thank you. Long-term outcomes, but I mean, yeah. still not really. Yeah, exactly. Just, it, yeah. You, might, you might have slightly better outcomes with one condition versus the other after 12 weeks. But if you, if you ran that for a year, you know, it very well could wash out, you know, it could be nothing. Um, and maybe one is a lot easier to stick to. So you have that, that buy-in, um, the ability to do these things long-term. So you can just, it's really hard to answer those questions with the way that that research is set up. So if you had the ideal um, environment, what would, what would be the topics that you would want to see? Same topics, just. Yeah, just longer. Um, and then the, the other thing is really difficult is like actually getting those sort of specialized populations, right? Like, almost all the sport, you know, it's, it's changing a little bit now where like sports scientists are with like high level athletes and we can test some of these things. Um, but it still makes it really difficult because you can't really have a control group, um, as easily because then you'd have to not do what you think is going to work with half your team. Like that's, that's a pretty weird situation to be in. Like try going up to a head coach and be like, I really think this is like a valuable thing, but half the team's not going to get it right? It's not going to fly. It's not going to fly at all. And then the same thing goes um, for different reasons with like rehabilitative populations um, because it's hard to get 12 or 15 or more people to do something for you that all have a similar degree. Maybe you look at tendinopathies, but there's, you know, a different between sort of a mild or moderate or severe tendinopathies. Um, so it's, it's very difficult to do. So that might take years of data collection just to get a sample size of 15. Um, so like one question like that came up in a systematic review going back to that would be, is it better to train at a high intensity at a joint angle that's well tolerated, or is it better to train at a longer joint angle that might not be very well tolerated, but with a, a really low intensity so that they can actually do it. And so we have the longer muscle length, lower intensity, maybe a more moderate muscle length at a higher intensity. And that's just going into, well, what can be done? What can these people tolerate? Um, not something that can be done without people who are injured, but you'd have to see, is there a pattern in what is tolerated and what isn't? I think for the clinicians listening though, you can still do that. Like you don't have to wait for that. You know, but it's gonna. It, you just—that's why you have to have feedback loops and communication with your athletes. If you're gonna choose, all right, this is gonna be the day. Like you polarize the days. This is gonna be a day where we go heavy, but 
within the tolerable range of motion where you're, you know, the green light has been consistent over the last several weeks or whatever. But on this day, we're going to put you into that kind of icky range of motion with a lighter load, but we're going to just have you live there a little bit. So those days are different, different focus. Um, and you just kind of keep tabs on people. But uh, I mean, I think that can be applied, you know, now with just some, some careful consideration with programming and, and communication. Yeah, one, well, I think you make a good point there with uh, just that research lags behind practitioners, right? And not the other way around often. Well, uh, well research helps keep us in check. I mean, you know, yeah. we do some dumb shit and then, okay, well, maybe not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. So what's on the horizon with you at Acumen? Because that sounds like a pretty awesome facility. You've got you know, the, the strength team there and the healthcare professionals kind of under one roof. That sounds like a dream. Yeah. So the majority of the group is up in Edmonton. So they opened their own like hub. They still work out of, um, well, not right now. Cause in Alberta we have uh, all the gyms and stuff are closed right now. Um, they still do some work out of uh, the Evolve facilities uh, for people in Edmonton. They know what I'm talking about. And in Calgary, um, before I joined the team, there was one athletic therapist and we were renting a little room out of a, a larger facility. And um, just like two days ago, we, we did a bunch of tours and we found our own little space. So we're hopefully writing up the paperwork on that. And then we'll get, you know, squat rack in there, some turf into the warehouse area, a couple of offices and um, and see, see what happens in there. So maybe by the end of the year, we've got, three or four people that are full-time down in Calgary um, along with me and, and Whitney, who's our athletic therapist uh, down here. So we'll, we'll see where that goes. Um, I think there's a ton of potential and, and really good people. Um, and, uh, and we'll see, I mean, the PhD for me will be, I defend that on February 10th and then uh, okay. I'll have to put some edits in. So um after that, it's like, who knows, world's, world's my oyster, I, I hope. Dang. We should have been rougher on you so that that would have been good practice for your defense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've given, uh, I've given a couple little little practice, practice defenses over the last few weeks. So um, I'm, I'm feeling good, but this is good practice too. <laughs> Quinn, you did blindside him with a what have you learned or whatever that True. question was. True. I did. What is the secret to life? Uh, well, I, I made a little Twitter post the other day because, well, Quinn, I, I know you're into R. Um, and uh, that's something I'm just barely starting to, to scratch the surface on. So I'm in like data camp and, and whatever right now, just trying to figure it out. And, we're, we're in the same boat, man. And uh, my goodness, I was like, if I could give myself a piece of advice, I would say just do like two hours a week from like day one of the PhD. And over three years, that would be, that'd be a, a huge help. Well, it sounds like your facility potentially will be or could be your home for your, for your future research as well. You don't have to worry about getting shipped, you know, over the ocean away from your work. So you got time and, and to chip away at things. Um, well, Dustin, thanks so much for being on, man. Really, really appreciate it. Uh, when this comes out, 
it's possible that you will have defensed your work. So people will have to, uh, they'll have to ask you how it went. Where if you go off the grid, they're like, well, his information was on the podcast, but I can't find him. We'll know. We'll kind of have an idea of what happened, but <laughs> uh, you'll, you'll do great, man. Where can people connect with you? Uh, so I'm on, I don't, I don't tweet or post all that often. Um, mostly retweet cool stuff. Uh, but, uh, Twitter is at Dustin.Ornchuk, I think. And Instagram is the same at Dustin Ornchuk. So those are, those are good ways. And then if somebody needs to get a hold of me, I don't know if I should give out my email address or not. I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to not. <laughs> that's, that's risky biz. Yeah, I get enough emails as is, as I'm sure uh, I'm sure you guys can all appreciate. Um, and then, oh shoot, oh uh, we can link your so we'll link the the paper that we talked about the review on ISOs, but we'll also link uh, Dustin's ResearchGate page too, so you can just click the research tab and you can see all the papers that, that we talked about and, and all his work uh, dating yeah. back to like 2013. I think. And if uh, and if people want, um, I wrote a narrative review on directly on eccentric quasi isometrics, and that's open access on on JSCR. So you can just uh, go in there, type in eccentric quasi isometric or my last name or whatever, and you don't need to pay or you don't need to snoop around on SciHub for that. That's um, that's open access. Awesome. Uh, we don't snoop around SciHub testing. That's illegal. <laughs> do that. Jared, where can people connect with you? Instagram's probably the, the place I'm most active. So at Jared.UnbreakableStrength. Um, I am on Twitter, but that's mostly to take screenshots and repost the Instagram. So there's that. Uh, email um, UnbreakableStrengthOnline at gmail.com if you want to fire that over. Or Jared at ClinicalAthlete.com. Boom. John? Uh, John.RebuildStronger. Instagram is pretty much the only thing I use. And John at Clinical Athlete. They can make it nice and simple. Check out the CPC too while you're at it. Yeah, Clinical Athlete Powerlifting course. Uh, you can find me. No, you can't. <laughs> All right, Dustin, again, thanks so much for being on. Um, this was awesome. And uh, look forward to hearing about how the defense went. Look forward to, to seeing more work that you put out and the, the awesome team that you're building up there in uh, Acumen. I think that's going to be a pretty cool place. I'll have to come visit in the summer, specifically in the summer. I don't do, uh, I don't do the, the white stuff in the winter. Like these <laughs> anyway, yeah. well, we've been pretty mild, but uh, I'm sure traveling around and actually socializing will be a lot easier in a couple of months. So oh, sure that. Oh yeah. That whole thing, this whole thing. Yeah. We'll wait. Uh, but good luck. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Jared. Thanks, John. Peace. Peace. One last thank you to Dustin Aranchuk for the great conversation. You can check out the show notes for ways to connect with Dustin and follow his work. And of course, thank you to my homies, Jared Madar and John Flagg for steering this ship alongside me. And thank you, the clinical athletic community, all six of you for joining us on this journey of knowledge and improved practice in both the gym and clinic. And one more time, go to the link in the show notes, join the Kalu community Facebook group, 
read the pinned announcement, introduce yourself, read the units that we've compiled to you with the, the Kalu mission and the Kalu approved starter pack material. Let's get our brain gains on. Thanks everyone and talk to you soon.